Biographical Bites from Bala Number 12 for September 2022. C. Dolores Tucker, Turbaned Warrior for Justice. Welcome to the 12th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, stories from Laurel Hill West, an historic and active cemetery in Bala, Kinwood, Pennsylvania. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and volunteer podcaster. Laurel Hill West opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East, in Philadelphia. It's more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East. It has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. And like Laurel Hill East, it is open 365 days a year in the summer months from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. There's plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the Bell Tower. If you enter on Belmont, follow the road with the white line in the middle. Another possibility is to just duck in while you're walking the Kinwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation is probably to take a bus to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue, then cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come in via the Writer's Ferry entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. I have a new theme song for both podcasts. It's called Names at Peace. It's written and performed by local artist James Harrow. This 12th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is for mid-September 2022. Cynthia Dolores Tucker was a Philadelphia-born and raised champion of civil rights in the 1960s and 70s, who chose to spend the last years of her life fighting what she saw as the pornography of gangster rap. She was vilified by the music community which spared no words in trying to show how sad and out of date her thinking was. She now lies in an unmarked grave at Laurel Hill West in Bala Kinwood. My wife Andrea and I moved to Philadelphia in 1986 after I graduated from medical school in San Antonio, Texas. I had matched to do a residency in emergency medicine at Thomas Jefferson University. I knew virtually nothing about Philadelphia at the time. I had been stationed at Valley Forge General Hospital in Phoenixville back in 1967-68. Once or twice, a few of us made an excursion into Philly. And I'd done a three-week rotation at Thomas Jefferson during my fourth year of med school, but I lived in a dormitory on 11th Street in Center City. In those pre-internet days, I have no recollection at all of how we decided to live in an apartment in Mount Airy. 
But for three years, Malvern Hall on McCallum Street, just off Lincoln Drive, was our home. It was convenient to SEPTA's R8 from Upsell Station and the H bus route. Dottie, our next-door neighbor in the apartments, liked to point out that Miss C. Dolores Tucker lived in the neighborhood, just on the other side of Lincoln Drive in that corner house, she would say. Dottie explained, she marched with Dr. King at Selma. She was Pennsylvania's Secretary of State. I never met her. I only saw her once or twice with her impeccable clothing and her stylish turban. It was only years later that I realized her significance to the history of Philadelphia. Cynthia Dolores Tucker was born in Philadelphia on 4 October 1927 to Bahamian immigrant missionaries Reverend Whitfield and Captilda Nottage. She was the 10th of 11 children. Reverend Nottage was born on Tarpum Bay, Eleuthera, in 1883. He followed his brothers Berlin and Talbert to New York City in 1910, where he took a job running an elevator for $6 a week. Whitfield and Captilda cooked the first meal of their married life over a fire made of newspapers. They moved to Philadelphia in 1925 and founded a mission that he operated for many years on South Street before he established the Ebenezer Community Tabernacle at 19th and Susquehanna Avenue. The Nottages also acquired a 200-acre farm in Upper Salford Township, Montgomery County, where they took in underprivileged black city children and raised tomatoes that they sold to the Campbell Soup Company. They were in church every Sunday, where Captilda played the organ and saxophone and directed the choir. Captilda Nottage ran a grocery store, an employment agency, and a real estate company. Dolores always called her my Christian feminist mother. Captilda specialized in helping newly arrived black workers from the South during the Great Migration. She occasionally had skirmishes with city officials for housing and fire code violations. In a 6 June 1957 article from the Philadelphia Inquirer, she admitted being cited for violations on 28 properties that she owned from her office at 2205 North 22nd Street. She testified that she had borrowed $50,000 in an effort to keep up repairs, but workmen she had paid to do the work had failed to do it. Some of the deficiencies listed included absence of alarm systems and fire ropes, exposed lath, poorly lit hallways, and use of kerosene stoves. In her defense, she offered that her husband had been ill and that there was theft of equipment from her properties as well as vandalism by tenants. When Captilda died in 1966, she left many of these properties for Dolores to run. Reverend Whitfield Nottage was 103 years old when he died in 1986. They are buried at Mount Lawn Cemetery. One of Dolores' older sisters, Grace Clementine Nottage Nicholas, was a beauty contest winner, who also served as the first black female detective with the Philadelphia Police Department. She drove a customized black Buick Roadmaster with a bright pink roof. Before Grace died, she chose her burial plot directly across the road from the Dorrance Mausoleums at Laurel Hill West.
The Dorrances were, of course, the owners of Campbell's Soup Company, for which her family had supplied so many tomatoes. Another sister, Dr. Georgiana Lorraine Nottage Lane, was the first black graduate of the Pennsylvania School of Optometry. She was licensed in 1947 and had a practice at 21st and Diamond. Dolores, and by the way, that's spelled with a capital L, capital D-E, capital L-O-R-E-S, attended Philadelphia High School for Girls and graduated in 1946. While there, she became lifelong friends with Lisa Richette, who was later a lawyer and a judge of the Court of Common Pleas in Philadelphia County. She studied finance and real estate at Temple University, but left before earning a degree to help her mother with the employment agency and real estate agency. She also briefly attended the Wharton School of Business, but did not receive a degree. Dolores was well aware of the changes taking place in Philadelphia in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. About the time she was born, Philadelphia was one of the nation's most important manufacturing centers and most segregated cities. W.E.B. Du Bois remarked, Philadelphia is the best place to discuss race relations because there's more race prejudice here than any other city in the United States. In contrast to cities like Detroit with its cars and Pittsburgh with its steel mills, Philadelphia was not dependent on a single industry. The Appalachian Workshop of the World attached itself to the city, which produced most of the nation's locomotives, commercial ships, hats, and industrial saws. And in 1930, African Americans owned more homes in Philadelphia than in any other northern city. But there was little mixing between blacks and whites. When the Great Depression hit, regional manufacturing output declined by 45%, factory payrolls dropped by 60%, and retail sales fell by 40%. In Philadelphia, one-third of the city's 89 banks closed their doors. Tens of thousands of blacks and whites were homeless, and shantytowns known as Hoovervilles sprang up all over the city. By 1933, black unemployment had reached 50%, and half of the black renters in the city were facing eviction. Black Philadelphians had been stalwart Republicans since the Civil War. And Republicans had a stranglehold on Philadelphia politics for many decades. In 1932, hundreds of communists and their allies peacefully protested the lack of government action at City Hall. They were attacked by police who arrested and injured dozens. In the 1932 presidential elections, black Philadelphians were told by their leaders that Franklin D. Roosevelt and his running mate, Texan John Nance Garner, were uncertain and potentially dangerous, and 73% of the African-American vote went to Herbert Hoover. Black voters in Chicago and Detroit did the same. But in New York, where African Americans had lived under Roosevelt's term as governor, they saw what he could do, and they gave him a majority of their votes. Now, During Republican Hampton Moore's second term as mayor, between 1931 and 1935, he declared, no one is starving in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is too proud to have slums. 
This was probably the final straw for many black Philadelphians. And during Moore's tenure, Democrats registered nearly 180,000 new voters, many of them black. Roosevelt's New Deal was working. Tens of thousands of jobs opened to black Philadelphians through the Works Progress Administration. When Roosevelt ran for a second term in 1936, he won 63% of the city's black vote. And in 1940, he won 68%. But Philadelphia unemployment still stood at 17%, and thousands of African Americans lived in ramshackle tenements, where there were frequent fires and other hazards. Civil rights leaders A. Philip Randolph and Walter White put pressure on Roosevelt. And on 19 June 1941, he issued Executive Order Number 8802, stating, There shall be no discrimination in the employment of workers in the defense industry and in government because of race, creed, color, or national origin. And when the United States entered the war a few months later, thousands of African Americans were welcomed to the shipyards and the steel mills. Between 1940 and 1950, more than 125,000 people of color moved to the city during the so-called Second Great Migration. The majority settled in North Philadelphia. Although the number of jobs fell after the war, most African Americans had changed their political loyalties from Republican to Democrat and never looked back. But living conditions were frequently appalling. And in 1946, 65,000 Philadelphia families were living communally in units designed for a single-family occupancy. The city's apartment and house vacancy rate was less than 1%, essentially non-existent. Attempts at integration were mostly unsuccessful and sometimes violent. One major exception was the neighborhood of Mount Airy. In 1951, 23-year-old Cynthia Dolores Nottage of 203 West Upsall Street in Mount Airy married William L. Tucker, Jr., also 23, of 1711 West Cambridge, just a few blocks from Girard College. Soon they purchased a home on the corner of Lincoln Drive and McCallum Street in Mount Airy. It was also in 1951 Dolores got deeply involved in politics as a volunteer worker for Joseph Sill Clark, who entered office in January 1952 as the first Democratic mayor of the city since 1884. The city has not had a Republican mayor since that election in 1952. Historically, Germantown and Mount Airy had served as pastoral getaways for Philadelphia's white elites. But in the late 1800s, some black elites began moving in and proved to be just as invested as their white neighbors in maintaining the historic, economic, and social standing of the community. Unlike many areas of the city where the influx of blacks caused white flight to the suburbs, Mount Airy proved to be a model of how to integrate a neighborhood. And within a decade, West Mount Airy was home to a group of African-American leaders, Raymond Pace Alexander and Sadie T.M. Alexander, whom I talked about in an earlier podcast, owned a home in the 700 block of Westview Street. William Coleman, later Secretary of Transportation under Presidents Nixon and Ford, lived on the 500 block of Horter Street. 
Joseph Coleman, Philadelphia's first black city council member, was a neighbor, as was the Reverend Leon Sullivan, who funded North Philadelphia's Progress Plaza, the nation's first black-owned shopping district. In 1963, West Virginia native Cecil Bassett Moore was elected president of the local chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. By now, there were 535,000 African Americans in the city, nearly 27% of the population, up from 13% two decades earlier. And Moore had no use for the Mount Airy black bourgeoisie. He said, I'd be lost if I had to move up to Mount Airy where I'd have to be so damned respectable that I couldn't stand on a street corner on Friday nights. The Negro is always on the corner on Friday and Saturday nights. That's where you go to talk. William and Dolores built their businesses in both trucking and in real estate, and they lived comfortably. But it was politics that attracted Dolores. When she was still a teenager back in 1946, she had raised her voice from the back of a flatbed truck to protest the Benjamin Franklin Hotel's refusal to admit black athletes who had come to town for the Pan Relays. Through the NAACP, she and Cecil B. Moore worked to end racist practices in the city's post offices and construction trade, and she rose through the ranks. Dolores first gained national prominence in 1965 when she led a delegation from Selma to Montgomery with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In her office, she displayed with pride the handcuffs she had placed on her that day, and she and Coretta Scott King remained friends for life. By the end of the decade, Tucker's expertise as a fundraiser for the NAACP, coupled with her Democratic Party affiliation, enabled her to be appointed chair of the Pennsylvania Black Democratic Committee. She was the first black and the first woman elected to the Philadelphia Zoning Board, and she spent more than half a century working with the NAACP. In 1971, C. Dolores Tucker was named Secretary of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania by then-Governor Milton Schapp, Democrat, who was Pennsylvania's first Jewish governor. This made her the highest-ranking African-American woman in state government and the first black woman to serve as Secretary of State anywhere in the nation. During her six years on the job, Tucker is credited with streamlining voter registration by instituting vote-by-mail and college campus spots for voting. She created the first commission on the status of women in the state and helped appoint more women and black people to judgeships, boards, and commissions than ever before. She worked hard to make sure that Pennsylvania was one of the first states to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. As chief of election, she got the voting age down from 21 to 18. Her state license plate was three, which she proudly brandished. In 1975, she was the first African-American woman to be elected as vice president of the Pennsylvania Democratic Party. And in 1976, she was the first African-American to be appointed as president of the National Federation of Democratic Women. But in 1977, Tucker was fired by Schapp after he accused her of using her position for personal gain. Schapp said that Tucker used state employees to write speeches for her, 
and then she was paid $65,000 in honoraria for the speeches, including collecting money from charities under her supervision. Tucker denied the claims, and friends like Jesse Jackson flocked to her protection. The only reason I got fired was because I refused to support someone the governor had designated as his heir who was going to dismantle the affirmative action program I fought so hard to put in, Tucker told the Los Angeles Times. For the rest of her life, she often mused aloud if a white male would have been treated the same way. She was a delegate to the historic White House Conference on Civil Rights. In 1984, she partnered with U.S. Representative Shirley Chisholm, who had made history as the first black woman to run for president, and they founded the National Congress of Black Women, NCBW, a nonprofit dedicated to advancing women in politics, education, and society at large. At its peak, they had more than 80,000 members. She also helped found the Philadelphia Martin Luther King Jr. Association for Nonviolence in 1983, the African American Women for Reproductive Freedom in 1990, and the Bethune Du Bois Institute in 1991. Political office eluded her, however. In 1978, she ran for lieutenant governor. In 1980, for the U.S. Senate, and in 1992 for the U.S. House of Representatives. She lost all of those races. Along the way, she was awarded two honorary degrees and hundreds of other awards, including the one of 25 of the world's most intriguing people by People magazine in 1996. She was named one of the 100 most influential black Americans and 100 most influential black organization leaders by Ebony magazine and the woman most qualified to be ambassador to the United Nations by Red Book and the National Women's Political Caucus. This is just to name a few. I will mention that she spoke at five Democratic National Conventions. It was in the 1990s that Dolores found a cause that occupied her energies for the rest of her life. Although she and William never had children of their own, They helped raise three generations of their extended families. A six-year-old grandniece was ostracized from her playmates for using foul language she had learned from listening to a new genre of music that had picked up the name gangster rap. Dolores listened and heard the lyrics of Tupac Shakur and Snoop Doggy Dogg, and she was appalled at their violence and misogynism. She flat out labeled the music pornographic and she vowed to fight it with the same energy she had put into civil rights. With her National Congress of Black Women, singers Dionne Warwick and Melba Moore joined in the fight. She passed out leaflets with lyrics from gangster rap and encouraged people to read them out loud. She picketed stores that sold the music, handed out petitions, and demanded congressional hearings. She also bought stock in Sony, Time Warner, and other companies so she could protest at shareholder meetings, mostly by reading the lyrics out loud to other shareholders. She even offered the corporation leaders $100 each if they would read the lyrics aloud at the board meetings. They declined. Proving that politics makes strange bedfellows, Tucker, a hardcore Democrat, 
joined forces with former Secretary of Education William Bennett, a conservative Republican who served in the administrations of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. Bennett called her at the time a daunting figure. Usually I'm the noisy one, but she's ferocious, he said. They were joined by others, such as Senator Joseph Lieberman of Connecticut. In 1993, she passionately testified at a Senate committee meeting. I am here to put the nation on notice that violence perpetuated against women through the music industry in the forms of gangster rap and misogynist lyrics will not be tolerated any longer. <laughs> principle, principle must come before profit. A year ago, I established the National Political Congress of Black Women's Entertainment Commission, headed by Dionne Warwick, Melba Moore, Terry Rossi of Billboard magazine, and Vaughn Alexander, our director. It had one primary goal, the task of examining and developing strategies and solutions for reshaping and maintaining positive images to preserve the dignity and the heritage of our youth. Instead of continuously exposing our youth to negative media that distorts their images of male-female relationships that undermines the stability of our families, communities, and nation by encouraging violence, abuse, and sexism as acceptable behaviors and perpetuates the cycle of low self-esteem of African-American youth. Thus, images that degrade our dignity and are an insult to our children, our families, and communities concern us too. And that includes all this gangster rap and misogynist lyrics, music that glorifies and promotes violence with guns, knives, or drugs, and denigrates and defames women. And with the release of Snoop Doggy Dog's debut album, Doggy Style, (laughs) that includes artwork that is nothing but pornographic smut available to any child to go in and buy with the album and with a record. That has got to stop. You want to know why I'm on the war path? When I saw this, I said, that's it. We march again. And we're going to keep on marching and demonstrating to the For 400 years, profit came before principle as black women bore the brunt of slave masters' degradation. But even through the Middle Passage, the peculiar institution of slavery, the spirit of black women and their families could not be broken. Today, however, through the lyrics of rappers who display no respect for women, no respect for families, and little respect for themselves, the souls of our sisters are being destroyed, and so too their progeny. All of us have watched as the industry have grown. We have watched not really knowing, not really understanding, not first realizing the damage that is inherent in what some thought were merely words. Now we see the direct and indirect effects. We see the rise in murders, in abuse, in batterings, teen prostitution and teen suicide. We hear the wailing mothers, the grieving sisters, the tormented brothers and fathers and children planning their own funerals with pink dresses and pink caskets. 
We feel their hopelessness and helplessness, and we embrace their pain. Yet in the midst of these tragedies, others still want to argue about the First Amendment right to freedom of speech, a freedom they have embraced to call African-American women hoes and bitches and sluts and even worse. As I see it, these are there are three things wrong with gangster rap and misogynist lyrics. It is obscene. It is obscene. It is obscene. In my view, in my view, it was never intended by the founding fathers of this nation that First Amendment rights were meant to protect obscenities. And if there were founding mothers, it would have been more explicit about what the First Amendment meant. Obscenity, obscenity has long been an exception. Obscenity, and we have the Attorney General here, I believe it's right. Obscenity has long been an exception to free speech. If the filth that is portrayed in these gangster rap videos and art is not obscene, then I submit that nothing is obscene. In 1992, the Canadian Supreme Court ruled that it was more important to ban speech that is dehumanizing to women than to protect free speech. African-American women have always been the protector and nurturers of their homes, their families, and their communities. We marched for our rights to Selma. I was there with Dr. King. We're beaten with billy cubs and we're bitten with dogs unleashed by bull Connors. We will not tolerate injustice and insults from our worst enemies then, and we sure ain't going to accept insults from our youth now. All right. Rappers invoked their First Amendment freedom of speech rights and called her narrow-minded. She snapped back. Even in the darkest days of slavery, we didn't sing these kinds of demeaning songs. We sang songs full of faith and hope that we shall overcome, that our eyes would stay on freedom, not the filth they're producing today, not the way they're warping our children. In 1994, the NAACP nominated rapper Tupac Shakur for one of its Image Awards. Dolores, who sat on the Board of Trustees and had raised more than a million dollars for the organization, was furious and protested vigorously. Some rappers ridiculed her in their lyrics. Her last name found some convenient rhymes that I won't repeat in this podcast, especially the lyrics from Eminem and Tupac. Although Tupac did say, you too old to understand the way the game's told. I did find four examples that I can play by careful editing. In his song, Church for Thugs, the game raps, I've got more hatred in my soul than Pac had for Doris Tucker. Let the 40 cal grow in public, more hatred inside my soul than Pac had for Dolores Tucker. Jay-Z chimes in as well with the lines, I don't care if you're C. Dolores Tucker or you're Bill Riley, you only riling me up. That's from the Black Album's Threat. If you see Dolores Tucker or you Bill O'Reilly, you only riling me up. For three years, they had me peeing out of a cup. Lil' Kim also referenced her in a track entitled Rockin' It from her second studio album, rapping, See Dolores T, screw her, I never knew her, after Tucker dubbed her music as gangster porno rap and filth. Black and blue underneath horse manure. See Dolores T, screw her, I never knew her, I'm good. Like milk mixed with Kahlua. 
And Lil Wayne blasted her on his tune, Million Dollar Baby, in what I have to admit is a clever rhyme. I've been on the grind, and word, you are just a tourist. Flowers for the dead, say hello to the florist. F with me wrong, bet I rush you like Boris. Now they're trying to kick it, but I ain't Chuck Norris. A cat with little flu, and he rolling up a forest. Can't be compared, no, I'm not a thesaurus. Can't be banned, I'm sorry, Miss Dolores. For the dead, say hello to the florist. But I brush it like Boris. Now they trying to kick it, but I ain't Chuck Norris. I kick it with a few, and he rolling up a forest. Can't be compared, no, I'm not in a thesaurus. Can't be banned, I'm sorry, Mr. Norris. In the inaugural 1995 issue of John F. Kennedy Jr.'s George Magazine, C. Dolores Tucker was recognized for her crusade against gangster rap. She was spoken of admirably in First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton's 1996 book, It Takes a Village and Other Lessons Children Teach Us. It was in 1995 that she was sued by Death Row Records, home to such rap stars as Dr. Dre and Snoop Doggy Dogg, for contractual interference. They allege that she tried to persuade the label to break a deal with Interscope Records, its distributor. In the suit, they state that she misrepresented her academic credentials, profited from ownership of slum properties in Philadelphia, and was fired as Pennsylvania's Secretary of State for using her post for personal gain. Death Row CEO Suge Knight stated to newspapers, C. Dolores Tucker is a phony. She is making a career out of disrespecting death row and our artists by pretending to be some great moral guardian. It's time that people found out who the sister really is. They were also troubled by her insistence at being called the Honorable Dr. C. Dolores Tucker, even though she had never graduated from college. She had those honorary degrees that were issued by Morris College in Sumter, South Carolina and Villa Maria College in Erie, Pennsylvania. Knight said she's about as much of a doctor as Dr. Dre is. She also caught flack from Nikki Giovanni, who in a 2000 interview in Callaloo magazine spoke about her admiration for Tupac, who'd been murdered in 1996. Giovanni said, why is a crazy old bee like C. Dolores Tucker complaining about Tupac Shakur? What does she know about what he's doing? What's Tipper Gore doing complaining about Prince? In March 1995, she was up to her old tricks. See, Dolores Tucker was arrested for blocking the doorway of Tower Records in the 600 block of South Street. She and 150 other people had shown up to protest the store's sale of gangster rap. Later that year, Time Warner sold its 50% stake in Interscope and Death Row Records, but denied its move was related to pressure from Tucker. She did a fist pump and considered it a major victory. In 1997, the year after Tupac's killing, C. Dolores Tucker sued his estate for $10 million in federal court, claiming that lyrics in How Do You Want It and wonder why they call you B, inflicted emotional distress, were slanderous, and invaded her privacy. Plus, the lyrics had damaged consortium with her husband. The case was later dismissed. 
Two of the highlights of her speaking career occurred when she and First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton were the keynote speakers for the Pentagon Observance of National Women's History Month, and when she and Coretta Scott King were the keynote speakers for the Women's Assembly at the African African American Summit held July 1997 in Zimbabwe. In October 2005, C. Dolores Tucker, a lifelong fighter for the rights of others, died from heart failure in a rehabilitation hospital in Norristown at age 78. Her services were conducted in the massive Deliverance Evangelistic Church at 20th and Lehigh, location for many years of Scheib Park. At her funeral on October 21st, more than 1,500 people attended. At the beginning of the ceremony, they all stood and shouted in unison, Thank you, Dolores. Former Vice President Al Gore spoke. I saw that turban as uniform of a four-star general in the battle for righteousness. Reverend Jesse Jackson said, Sister Dolores was committed to saving children. Those who make us better have to swim upstream. And Mayor John Street said, C. Dolores Tucker was the best-dressed woman I had ever seen. On the dais were Martin Luther King III, who read a letter from his mother Coretta, U.S. Representative Chaka Fatah, activist Dick Gregory, and former U.S. Labor Secretary Alexis Herman. The funeral program was 24 pages long, and the service lasted more than three hours. In July of 2006, C. Dolores at William Tucker's home on the corner of Lincoln and McCallum in Mount Airy got the Commonwealth's blue historic marker. She has a similar marker in Harrisburg, the state capital. It's on North Street between Commonwealth and Third. Rumor has it that there is an unpublished memoir. C. Dolores Tucker's final resting place is under a tree just across the street from Grover Washington, Jr., in the Franconia section of Laurel Hill West. Sadly and shockingly, there is no marker for her grave. I hope when she gets one, it is in the shape of a turban. Have you been disappointed that there have not been more members of the African-American community, particularly leaders in the African-American community, who've been willing to be on the front lines with you about barbershop about rap music that has just you know that has hurt me more than all that white folks have done to me you know that has hurt me more because our people don't really understand the effect that this is going to have on our people um, because we're going to be gone those of us who've been the fighters and I'm glad you're recording this history because all of us we're going to be gone, just like uh, we didn't know about what took place in the latter part of the 18th, you see, 1800s. That was all of it. Now that we had congresspersons, now we had legislators, rather, writing the Constitution of State Constitution of Georgia and South Carolina, they were there. Legislate. We don't know about that. They wrote, and, and our kids coming up in night in 2040 and 50 and 60 will not know about us. That's why they're putting that DV out there. That will be remembered. That will be played. The Dr. King was a hoe. And they will reverse the holiday. They'll have a billing and there'll be no more holiday. 
Coretta Scott King asked me to uh, to carry out that holiday celebration, they wouldn't even play it up in the paper because they wanted it to disappear. They said, we only have two holidays for Washington and Lincoln, two presidents, and they're going to wipe it away. And the kids, that's why they're recording it, all this music, that's all our kids will be hearing in 2020, 25 and 30 and 40. 2040 and 50, and they'll have to start fighting. Those who are knowledgeable now will have to start the whole civil rights movement again. Those who fail to learn the lessons of history are what? Doomed to repeat them. As I'm sure you've noticed, we are now Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia and Laurel Hill West in Balakinwood. If you become a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill, you can take advantage of many member benefits, discounts on tours at both cemeteries and in the gift shop, members-only tours, two annual members-only podcasts, Membership in the Friends of Laurel Hill is a terrific gift for you or your friends and relatives who share your love for Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. Remember that the next edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories number 43 will be available in late September. There have always been watchmakers and clockmakers in the city of brotherly love to keep everyone on time. Henry Voigt was a clockmaker and personal friend of Thomas Jefferson and became the first chief coiner of the United States Mint. Jeweler and clockmaker Isaiah Lukens used his skills to build clocks for Independence Hall, the Athenaeum, and others. He was a founder and the first vice president of the Franklin Institute. Joseph Trowbridge Bailey and Andrew B. Kitchen formed a partnership as jewelers on Chestnut Street in 1832. Later expansion turned their enterprise into the jewelry juggernaut of Bailey, Banks, and Biddle, which designed and produces the military medals used today, including the Medal of Honor and the graduate class rings for West Point and Annapolis. That episode of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories should be out on or about September 23rd. Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, episode number 13 in mid-October, will tell of ice cream in Philadelphia, especially as it was made by the Bassetts and the Briars, two giants in Philadelphia confectionery history. Expect that podcast on or about October 13th. If you want self-guided tours, they are available for both cemeteries. For Laurel Hill East, download the app. For Laurel Hill West, well, you'll find that with your podcast. It's a walkthrough from the Kinwood Trail entrance to the Pencoid exit. A self-guided tour coming back from Pencoid to Barmouth is almost completed. It should be out soon. Look for them wherever you listened to your podcasts. So what tours are coming up? I assume you will listen to this in the second week of September. So there's still a lot of things coming up in September. Uh, Some fringe performances, believe it or not, Death is a Cabaret, 
on Friday the 16th and Saturday the 17th at 8 p.m. That is at Laurel Hill East. Sunday, September 18th, is a Pints and Plots tour and tasting of both cemeteries. We'll be at both East and West. Because of the travel time, that is a three-hour tour, but you will be rewarded with beer at the end if you're old enough to drink. Tuesday, September 20th at 6 p.m., Boneyard Bookworms. Thursday, the 22nd, is a members-only Fall Equinox Cocktail Mixology Workshop. Friday, the 23rd, a Hot Spots Tour at East. That is from 10 a.m. until noon. Saturday, September 24th, 10 a.m. until 11.30, Sacred Spaces and Storied Places Tour at West. That is my tour. I am celebrating my 75th birthday by giving a tour, and I plan to have cake and ice cream and probably some wine also. If you can't make it to my tour in the morning, then definitely catch Mary Ellen's tour on Saturday afternoon, September 24th, from 1 until 3. That is at East. You've heard me describe Laurel Hill as a sculpture garden. She will prove it. She will go around and point out the beautiful sculptures at the cemetery. This one I'm looking forward to. Sunday, the 25th, Pat Rose is doing a Spirits and Spiritualist tour at East from 1 p.m. until 3 p.m. That should be terrific. Early October, Saturday the 1st, is the Rest in Peace 5K Run, starting at 5 p.m. at Laurel Hill East. Sunday, October 2nd, I'm doing an accessible hotspots and storied plots tour at Laurel Hill East. That means we stay on the paved road. And if you have mobility issues, if you use a wheelchair or if you use a scooter, uh, you will be fine. We're going to stay on the paved road for that tour. Soul Crawl Halloween History Tours are one of our favorite things to do every year. This year it's on Friday, October 7th and Saturday, October 8th, starting at 7 p.m. I usually do the last tour. I'm the last one to take off to catch the stragglers. And for anybody who does show up with mobility issues, um, I stay on the paved path. If everybody is temporarily able-bodied, then we may venture off the path. The big event is the Gravedigger's Ball. This year it's at the Masonic Temple on Friday, October 21st from 7 p.m. until midnight. There should be no finer way to spend an October evening than at the Gravedigger's Ball. Saturday, October 22nd, Sacred Spaces and Storied Places at Laurel Hill West, 10 a.m. until 11.30. And one you don't want to miss is Sunday, October 23rd at 1 p.m. The Worlds of Thomas Jefferson by Jefferson uh, portrayer Bill Barker. He does not dress up as Jefferson here, although he does so at Monticello, where he is a guide. But he gives a fantastic tour of all of the Thomas Jefferson connections at Laurel Hill East. There's a Boneyard Bookworms on Thursday, October 27th from 6 until 7.30 p.m. Hotspots tour Friday the 28th from 10 a.m. until noon at East. Another big one coming up Saturday, October 29th, 1 p.m. until 3 p.m. The Nevermore Tour 
Edgar Allan Poe Connections at Laurel Hill East. Russ Dodge is giving that one. On the 29th, True Tales from the Tombs, and that will be at West. And we're taking that to West for the first time this year. You will be escorted around the property to hear the stories of people who are buried there. And finishing off October, Sunday the 30th at 1 p.m., a fall foliage tour at West. Our um, arborist, Aaron Greenberg, will lead that, and you will learn a ton of information about horticulture in Pennsylvania at this time of year. Tickets for all these events are available from our website, laurelhillphl.com events. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and podcaster for both cemeteries. Maybe I will see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well. The bibliography is up next. Most of the information on C. Dolores Tucker came from newspapers. Various issues of the Philadelphia Inquirer and Philadelphia Daily News from 1951 through 2006. Also, there were long articles in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Chicago Tribune. As far as journal articles, Gloria Naylor and Nikki Giovanni, Conversation. Callaloo, Autumn 2000, Volume 23, Number 4, pages 1395 to 1409. Jeanita W. Richardson and Lim A. Scott, Rap Music and Its Violent Progeny, America's Culture of Violence in Context. That is from the Journal of Negro Education, Summer 2002, Volume 71, Number 3, pages 175 to 192. And Jennifer C. Lena, Social Context and Musical Content of Rap Music, 1979 to 1995. That was in Social Forces, September 2006, Volume 85, Number 1, pages 479 to 495. And last but definitely not least is a brand new book that was published by Temple Press earlier this year. It's called If There Is No Struggle, There Is No Progress, Black Politics in 20th Century Philadelphia. It is edited by James Wolfinger. Temple University Press, copyright 2022 by Temple University Press. Astonishingly, there's only one mention of Dolores in the book, and that's early on, on page 7. If you're interested in Philadelphia's history, the history of race and politics in Philadelphia, I think this is an essential book. Stay safe, stay well.